Well, thank you so much for being with us this morning. We're so thankful that we get the opportunity to take a look at God's word together today. I'm so thankful that we've had an opportunity to worship today. Brandon and the band, you guys did a fantastic job this morning. And from wherever you are this morning, you may have noticed that the scripture text that we read was actually from the book of James. James is not really in the order of where we've been going verse by verse through Scripture. Today we're really in 2 Samuel chapter 13 through 14, but instead of reading from that passage, I thought I would read a different passage. I'd have us read a different passage that was really some of the principles that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 13 and 14, because 2 Samuel 13 and 14 is a continuation of the story of David, and that's what we've been looking at really is the story of David. We're in the time of David, and some of the things we've seen so far are really interesting, and what we see in chapter 13 and 14 is a story that I'll tell, and you're welcome to go back and read it sometime whenever you want to. It's, a, it's an interesting story. It feels like a story straight out of Game of Thrones, and so if you're looking for the next licentious action adventure from HBO, just turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13 and 14, and you'll find it right there in the Bible. I'll tell that story in just a minute. But before I do, I just really want to set up what the story is all about. The story is all about desire. It's all about desire, and we're going to see it as we tell the story of the passage, and then we're going to see what we're supposed to do about it out of James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. So that'll be the direction that we go, and as we talk about this passage, I just want to shape it with a question that I would ask, and the questions it's a simple question, but it's such a hard question to answer, and the question is this, if you knew what God knew, would you still do what you're about to do? Think about that question with me for for just a minute. If you knew what God knew, would you still do what you're about to do? Now, see, here's the reason why I ask that question, because every major mistake in my life has been made because I've let my desires drive my decisions. I want what I want when I want it, and I want what I want right now. And every time I look back over the course of my life and I think every major mistake I've ever made has come as the result of me giving in to undisciplined desires. I just do what I want, when I want, the way I want. And as a result of it, I end up tripping or stumbling or falling down or hurting myself or hurting someone else. If you knew what you knew, or excuse me, if you knew what God knew, would you do what you're about to do? I have a friend who just before the COVID crisis hit, he went out and he went into debt to buy a brand new car. It's a great car. And he had a great job. And in his budget, he looked and everything about his budget and everything about his lifestyle indicated that he could afford to go into debt to buy this car. So he buys the car and within six weeks, the COVID crisis hits. And within eight weeks, he's laid off and doesn't have a job anymore. And within three months, he's looking at this debt that he went into for a car. Nothing wrong with the car, but something unexpected happened. And now because he didn't pay attention to the parts of scripture that said, don't go into debt, even though all of his money looked like he had plenty of it to do this with, now he's in a space and a place where he just can't afford that car anymore. If you knew what God knew, would you do what you're about to do? Long time ago, about 20 years ago, I owned a video production company. The name of the company was Interactive Solutions, and we served ministries and organizations like churches, and, and, and we just had a great time producing video for churches and ministries. And one of the places that we did that for was we did it for a camp called Camp of Champions, and it was the very first camp we ever did. And we had a great time. One week was on the beach, and that was awesome. I mean, hey, you get paid to go take video on the beach? How, how bad must that be? The second week was in Alice, Texas. No, it wasn't in Alice, Texas. It was in San Angelo, Texas. We had a great time with a 
bunch of junior high kids, a bunch of senior high kids. It was two incredible weeks. And at the end of those two weeks, the same man had been preaching it. And he was about to go to to do two more weeks of camp of his own camps somewhere else. And he liked what we did enough that he looked at us and he said, hey, you should just come with me to do these next two weeks of camp. So I'm thinking, we've got two weeks of camp lined up. It's a brand new business. This is a brand new thing. And this guy likes us enough that he's asked us to come do two more weeks with him. And man, I was so excited because, man, my desire was to go do this camp because it would just help the business. It was, it was just an indication that things were going well. And I was just so excited for the opportunity to do it. So without thinking about it, without praying about it, without talking to my business partner about it, I just said yes, because I wanted to do it. And then we step into those two weeks of camp and all of the equipment we had, which wasn't a lot, it had been covered in sand from being on the beach. It had been transported back and forth halfway across the nation and back twice and set up and torn down and set up and torn down. And it just wasn't ready for the next two weeks. And then my staff, I and the other people who were working with me, which was Londa and one other person, we were exhausted. And we got to those next two weeks of camp and every piece of equipment we owned crashed and burned. It just died. It was terrible. And, and we spent these next two weeks just struggling and fighting and working hard just to make another camp work because in my desire, I wanted to be successful. I wanted my new business to grow. I wanted to serve this camp and this ministry, all for good reasons, with good intentions. My desires were all good intentions, but I never asked God about it. And I never took the time to talk to my partner about it. We just said yes, and we just went. And I suffered as a result of that. If you knew what God knew, would you still do what you're about to do? You see, that's the story we're gonna see in 2 Samuel chapter 13 and 14 today. And it's far more tragic than simply going into debt for a car or making a bad business decision or doing anything like that. It's actually the kind of decision that has the potential of destroying a kingdom. You see, the thing we've seen about David so far is that King uh, David is, uh, it really is like a story out of Game of Thrones. He's of the house of David. He's the, the son of Jesse of the tribe of Judah. And he's a slayer of giants and he's a singer of Psalms. And eventually the Bible, calls him a man after God's own heart. Yet for the next several weeks, we're not going to see what looks like a man after God's own heart. What we're going to see is a man who is desperately flawed. Last week, what we saw was a man who may have been a great king, but he was a terrible husband. He ends up committing murder and adultery simply because of something that he wants, Bathsheba. And this week, we're going to see this great king, man after God's own heart, who in all honesty was just a terrible father. And so let me tell you the story of 2 Samuel chapter 13 and 14. And it is, it's a tragic story. David had a firstborn son. He was the one who was in line to be the next king after David. His name was Amnon. And David also had multiple wives. And so Amnon had a number of half-brothers and half-sisters. One of his half-sisters was Tamar, and Tamar was a beautiful woman. Tamar's full brother was Absalom. So I'm just introducing the characters. There's Amnon, who is first in line for the throne. Tamar, who is the half-sister to Amnon, and Absalom, who is, he's also a handsome guy. He's a strong guy. He's a popular guy. Technically, he's third in line for the throne, but David's second-born son, in all likelihood, has passed away. So now it looks like it's in order Amnon first, and then Absalom second, and Tamar and Absalom are full brother and sister. And then there's one more character in the story. His name's Jonadab. Jonadab's one of the cousins, and he's one of the friends to the family, and specifically, he's a friend to Amnon. So here's what happens. Amnon just desperately desires Tamar. 
He just believes that she's beautiful and he wants her. And he, he makes himself sick. The Bible says he makes himself sick with love. I actually think the better word there would probably be lust. He makes himself sick over Tamar because he just wants her so bad. So Jonadab, the cousin, comes along and he hatches this plan. Hey, Amnon, here's what you do. Here's how you can get to her. Here's a way that you can bring her into your life and maybe win her over and convince her. I don't know if Jonadab's intentions were good or bad, but I know the end of the matter was far worse than I think anybody could have imagined because they hatched this plan together. Amnon's gonna pretend to be sick. And while he pretends to be sick, he's gonna go to his father or he's gonna send someone to his father and say, I'm so sick, would you have Tamar come and take care of me while I'm sick? And so that's exactly what David does. At David's command, Tamar, his daughter, goes to see Amnon. Amnon pretends to be sick. Tamar prepares a meal before him. And then, and then Amnon invites Tamar into his chambers and dismisses all of the other servants and says, Tamar, really, I really just want you to care for me alone. And once he gets Tamar into his chambers, he takes her. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel 13, he takes her and he violates her. And it's just tragic. It's tragic because she is so hurt and wounded and something like that should never happen, should never happen to a daughter of David, especially at the king's command. Something like that should never happen, should never be committed by a man who's first in line for the throne. He has everything he could ever want except for Tamar and he takes her by violence. Well, she, she pleads for her shame. She pleads that, that he would not treat her in such a way, yet he does anyway. And then it's really interesting what happens. It says that the love that he has for her is transformed into a kind of spiteful hatred. And he kicks her out and she escapes from, she escapes from Amnon to go to flee to Absalom. And Absalom is angry. He's mad, but he holds his anger in. And it says that King David is mad. But it says nothing happens to Amnon in that moment. And Tamar lives out the rest of her life in Absalom's house. No justice takes place in that moment for Tamar. And it doesn't happen because Absalom is unwilling to do anything about it. It happens because Absalom is a clever leader. Not necessarily clever in a good way, but he's a clever leader. He holds his peace. He holds his peace for two years. And in two years, he decides, I'm going to have this banquet and I'm going to invite all of my brothers and half-brothers, all of my sisters and half-sisters. I'm going to invite them to come to the banquet. I'm even going to invite my father, the king. He invites David and David says, no, no, we would be far too much. Just invite your brothers and sisters. So all of his siblings come to Absalom's house for, for a dinner. It's two years after Tamar's been, been abused by Amnon. And Amnon is one of the ones who comes to Absalom's house. And in the moment that Absalom has this, this, this dinner, he instructs his servants. He says, here's what I want you to do. We're going to have a great time. And when Amnon is deep in his cups, when he's flushed with wine, when he's just too drunk to know better, I want you as my servants to rise up and murder Amnon. And that's exactly what happens. Well, all the brothers and sisters of Absalom, they flee in that moment because they don't know if Absalom is making a play for the throne or not. They just know that the firstborn son of David has now been murdered right in their sight. So they run, word gets back to David that all of his sons and daughters are dead and David begins to mourn. And then the truth comes back to, 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 uh, to David. And the truth is, no, 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 it wasn't everyone. It was just your eldest son, Amnon. It was Absalom who did it. 
And in verses, or in chapter 13, the end of chapter 13 into chapter 14, we hear the effect that that has on David's relationship with Absalom. Absalom is exiled for two years. And after two years, Absalom is a clever leader again, not necessarily a good leader, but as a clever leader, he devises a plan to get back into the good graces of his father and to come back into the kingdom. And what we're gonna see in the weeks to come is that this instance between Amnon, Tamar, Jonadab, and Absalom, what this is, is the beginning of the rebellion that Absalom, David's son, leads against his father, the king. If you knew what God knew, would you still do what you're about to do? You see, this whole passage, it's all about desire. And the first thing that we see in this story of Absalom and Amnon and Tamar, the first thing that we see is that desire without discipline destroys. All the desire you have in your life, desire without discipline destroys. Amnon had a desire for sex and it destroyed his relationship with Absalom Tamar and with his father and eventually ended his life. Jonadab had a desire for influence and he spoke things. He gave an idea to someone that turned from whatever, whatever Jonadab's intentions were, it turned into something that eventually led to revolt and rebellion in the kingdom of David. So uh, Jonadab had that desire for influence. Absalom had this desire for justice. Absalom had this desire for justice, but it was unrestrained. It didn't go through the right legal channels, which would have been through his father, the king. And it turned into, instead of justice, it transformed into vengeance and revenge and led to rebellion and revolt. And David, even David had a desire. David's desire in this moment, we saw it actually with Bathsheba. While all the other kings were out having war and, and, and defending their kingdom, David was at home and here he is still at home. David had a desire for rest and for peace. And even though he was angry at Amnon in a passive aggressive manner, he's angry, but he doesn't do anything about it. And so Tamar loses the protection of a father and the justice of a king and the end result is rebellion and revolt at the hands of Absalom. You see, desire without discipline destroys. And I wonder, what is it that you desire right now that is hurting your life, that maybe is destroying your family, that is so, it so permeates who you are and, and what you want that every decision is shaped and influenced by this passion you have for money or this desire you have for physical satisfaction through sex or, or, or the need that you have to be popular or influential. You see, those desires without discipline will destroy. And the first thing that we need to realize is that both desire and discipline, they come from God. Both of those things are gifts from God. Desire, desire gives us the motivation to act and discipline gives us the, the way that we can perform right actions. So one, they're, they're both from God. So for example, God gives us a desire for food. He gives us a desire to eat. But at the same time, discipline tells us that gluttony will destroy the health of our life. The Bible tells us that, well, we, we've been given a desire for physical intimacy. Yet scripture is crystal clear that there's only one path that leads to a blessed sexuality that the way we express our sexuality is brilliant and beautiful and blessed in the context of the way God prescribes it. And, and we see so many other examples of this, even with rest and with peace, which is the desire that David had. The desire for rest 
God gives us the need for rest. He set aside an entire day of the week, the Sabbath day, for us to rest. Yet God says, he disciplines us and says, but, but laziness will impoverish a people. And then that idea that we want peace. Well, God gives us the peace that passes understanding, yet at the same time, he reminds us that justice, justice is worth fighting for. And so both desire and discipline come from God. And one of the things we've got to recognize as we take a look at this story is that whatever desire you may have, it's always easy to find someone who will feed your desires. You can always find someone who will say, oh, that's a great idea. You should go do that. That's exactly what Amnon did. He found Jonadab and Jonadab in his desire for influence, he looks at Amnon and says, well, let me tell you how you can get her. Let me tell you how you can get exactly what you want the way you want. Here's how this can work for you. And so he gives him this idea. You're always gonna find someone who will feed your desires. It's really an interesting thing. Even in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter three, this place of perfection, where God has looked at Adam and Eve and said, you can have anything you want in this garden, as much of it as you want. You can be filled to the full with everything here, except for that one tree. This one tree, you can't have that one tree. And Eve kept looking at that tree and she recognized that it was desirable to eat. And she recognized that it, it had some qualities that maybe other trees didn't have. And you know, it's easy to find someone who will feed your desires. In Genesis chapter three, the serpent shows up. <laughs> Even in the perfection of the garden, the serpent shows up and says, if you want it, just take it. Surely God didn't really mean what he said. Surely he just wants to keep you from having a good time. Surely he just wants to keep you from that thing that you want most. Surely God, surely God doesn't want to protect you. Surely he's keeping you from something that's better for you than what God says. And so even in the garden, you can find someone who will feed your desires. You know, we see that in our culture today as it comes, when it pertains to our sexuality. You can take almost any expression of sexuality uh, that we could discuss today and you can find someone who will tell you that's the right thing to do. That's okay, that's good. Actually, this week, in the state of Utah, a new law went into effect that reduced polygamy from being a felony to being something less than that. It actually uh, has less value than a parking ticket now in Utah. And that's because you're gonna always find someone who will more than, more than gladly feed your desires. Desires though without discipline are dangerous. And while God gives us our desires, he also gives us discipline and, discipline. and specifically with our sexuality, he says, I want you to enjoy it. Here it is. It's a gift for you. I can't tell you the number of times in scripture he looks at a married couple and says, go forth and multiply. Enjoy yourselves. But at the same time, he's saying, be careful because that sexuality is also a fire that burns within you. And, and in the right order, following the right footsteps, following the right path, your sexuality is blessed. And outside the protection of God's design, your sexuality is less than blessed. Now, you may disagree with me, and I get it. I understand why you disagree with me, because you will find someone who will agree with whatever you want. You'll find it. I'm simply saying this is what Scripture says about how our sexuality should be expressed. There's another truth that we see in the story of Amnon and Tamar and Jonadab, and it's the idea that ungodly desires are just never satisfied. 
Isn't it interesting that Amnon, he burned for Tamar. He wanted her so badly. And it's described at the beginning of the passage as love. Yet as soon as he got exactly what he wanted, he despised her. He hated her and he cast her aside. It's actually in verse 15, I believe, where he's, he kicks her out of his place. And it says now he hates her instead of loves her. Why is that? Well, because ungodly desires, they're just never satisfied. They're never satisfied. You get what you want and then suddenly find that you want more. You get what you want and then suddenly you find you want more. You go buy that one car and then suddenly the next car is available. You go buy one phone today and three years later, two years later, one year later, the next phone, the better phone comes along and you're just not satisfied anymore. You decide that you're hungry so you sit down to eat that hamburger and and it's a great hamburger but as soon as you get done eating the hamburger, you're full and filled but now someone brings dessert out. And man, that ice cream just looks so good. And so even though I'm full, I'm still going to keep eating because ungodly desires are just never satisfied. Isn't that really what every advertisement is all about? It's someone trying to get you to want something and really just trying to reinforce what you want already. They're doing it with food. They're doing it with sex. They're doing it with desire. They're doing it with all of these things. They're simply telling you this is what you want and what you want is right because it'll make you happy and it'll be better if you just do it your way instead of God's way. Even with the news, we do that, don't we? We can select the facts we want to believe and the news channels we want to follow simply because they agree with me already. So instead of feeding my need for information, they're feeding my desire to be entertained. Desire without discipline, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. But here's the other truth. Desire with discipline, it gives life. Desire with discipline gives life. I want us to turn someplace. If you're taking a look at your scripture, whether it's a paper copy or a digital copy, copy, go ahead and turn to James chapter four. James chapter four is is where we're gonna be. And that's the passage that Randy read just a few moments ago. And we're gonna focus in for the next few minutes on verses seven through 10, because sometimes scripture is prescriptive and sometimes it's descriptive. And what we see in 2 Samuel 13 and 14 we see a description of what happened in the kingdom of David. We see a history that's described and there's really nothing in 2 Samuel 13 or 14 that says, do this, don't do that. It's simply a cautionary tale. It's the story of what happens when desire runs out of control. It's the story of what happens when we don't discipline the things that we want and how devastating that can be within our families. And how devastating that can be within our own lives. And so today we're going to jump into James chapter 4 because James chapter 4 is specifically about how do you shape your desires? How do you discipline your desires in a way that honors God? So let me read that to us. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. And here's just the pattern for how you can discipline your desires into a form that brings honor and, and, and glory to God and really ensures, well, that you can answer that question, right? Right? If you knew what God knew, would you still do what you're about to do? Well, how can I possibly answer that question? You can build your life on the principles of Scripture. Scripture doesn't tell you jot and tittle everything you should eat and every decision you should make. Should I take this job or that? Should I play this sport or that sport? Should I stand idly by and watch while my friends all run out and do that one thing or should I join them? Scripture doesn't tell you the specifics of those things, but by principle, Scripture tells you these are the guidelines. These are the guardrails 
that will keep you from falling off a cliff. And so here's James chapter four, verses seven through 10. And we'll see just a step-by-step process for how we can be disciplined in our desires and, the, and, and those things will lead to life. Verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So here's the step-by-step process for how you, can, how you can shape your desires, how you can make the most of your desires through the lens of God's design and God's word. Here's how you can dis- discipline your desires so that you can bring glory and honor to God and you can take righteous steps in the direction that God has for you. The very first one is to submit yourselves to God. Submit yourselves to God. And that's really simple. What that means is that you draw the line where God draws the line. When I was a kid, we took a trip up Pikes Peak and uh, it was a fun trip. It was me and my mom and dad, me and my brother. We were all in the same car and my brother and I were really young. And, and you've experienced this if you have a brother at all. We're in the back seat and we're just messing with each other all the time. We're picking on each other, making each other squeal and squirm and calling each other names and things like that. And eventually, I don't remember which one of us it was, but one of us draws the line down the center of the car. You've, you've been there. You've done this before, right? We draw the line down the center of the car and we say, don't cross this line. Don't mess with me anymore. I'm going to I'm going to get you, you know, don't do this, which just spurred the other one into that moment of, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I haven't crossed the line. I'm not touching you. And so we did that and it just drove my parents absolutely insane. I have no idea how we survived family trips like that because we just messed with each other all the time. I'd look at my brother and say, why are you so ugly? And eventually he'd say, same reason you're so stupid. And we just had those moments where we're picking on each other all the time. And we had that line, I'm not touching you. We'd get as close as we could without making mom or dad mad. Now on that trip up Pike's Peak, there was another line. And it was the guardrail on the side of the road. And my dad, he just absolutely hates heights. He just does not like being in high places. So here he is driving this car up Pike's Peak and on the side of the road is this guardrail and on the side, just over the edge of the guardrail is a sheer drop. It seems like thousands of feet. I have no idea how deep it was, but it just seemed like if you go past that line, you're gonna fall off a cliff and you're gonna be gone forever. My dad drove the car closest to the mountainside as frequently as he could. He drove up and down Pikes Peak, sometimes on the wrong side of the road. And if we met an oncoming car, the oncoming car had to move because my dad was not gonna get anywhere near that guardrail because he was so afraid that we might fall off the edge. See, those are two totally different kinds of lines. And here's the challenge. The lines that God draws for you and for me, those are like the guardrails on Pikes Peak. You cross that line, you die. You cross that line, you destroy your family. You cross that line, you destroy your finances. You cross that line, your career is over. You cross that line, you dishonor God. And in dishonoring God, you break your relationship with him in a way that requires mm, something more powerful than you to fix. You break your relationship in a way that requires the death of the sinless, spotless lamb of God in order for you to be forgiven and for your life to be restored. You cross that line and on the other side is death and destruction. But here's the challenge. So many of us, when we say submit to God, draw the line where God draws the line, so many of us treat that line the way my brother and I treated the line in the middle of the back of the car. You see, one of them just is annoying. 
but this one leads to death. And we treat this one like, oh, let's see how close I can get before I fall off. Let's see how far I can go until something really bad happens. And we, we, step, we step just over that line just enough. And then we realize, well, the water's kind of warm here. This is kind of nice. This kind of scratches that desire that I have. So instead of submitting to God, we do the same thing Eve did. And we go, well, surely he didn't really mean it like that. And we surround ourselves with people who agree with us and will tell us what we want to hear. And it's not long before we realize we are a long way beyond the guardrail God set. The first step to disciplining your desires is to submit to God. Submit to God and and to just recognize that we need to draw the line where God draws the line. There's this incredible quote by G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton was a man who lived at the turn of the 20th century. He was an author and an apologist. And some of the books that he wrote were books that influenced C.S. Lewis into into coming to faith in Christ. And in Orthodoxy, one of his books, he says this, and the more I considered Christianity the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild and free. You see, some of us feel like God puts these guardrails out to to remove our desires, that that he put these guardrails in in our lives in order to to take away the freedom and to take away the fun. But if we believe what G.K. Chesterton said, if we take a look at all of what scripture says, these guardrails are simply the space between where the best of life, the best of things as God God designed them, can run wild and free. It's why within the context of our uh, marriage, Our sexuality is so blessed. In the context of marriage, God over and over again says, this is blessed. Enjoy yourselves. Go forth and multiply. There's no restrictions on this, but outside that context, you're outside the guardrails and it's less than blessed. You see, there's some other things that you learn inside this passage, James chapter four, verses seven through 10. The first thing is to submit to God, draw the line where God draws the line. The next one is to resist the devil. Resist the devil. Well, now that sounds big. That sounds spiritual. That sounds deep. And it is. But maybe if we simplify it, we could say it like this. We ought to dismiss ungodly advice. It's easy for you to find someone who will agree with your desires, just like Jonadab, and tell you to do whatever it is that you want to do. The state of Utah has said polygamy is okay. We constantly keep drawing the line in a different space when it comes to our sexuality. It's easy for you to find that, but maybe we ought to filter every piece of advice we get through the word of God. Are we inside God's guardrails for our lives? And if that advice is not inside those guardrails, then maybe we should dismiss those. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Dismiss the advice of ungodly people or ungodly advice. I have people who have sat down in my office, men and women both, who have said, I don't love my spouse anymore. I think I want a divorce. And part of the tragedy of that moment is that the vast majority of people who have sat in my office like that, they're not really looking for me to tell them what scripture says because they already know. And they're not really outlining some terrible tragedy that's taken place inside their marriage. They're actually looking for me to agree with them and tell them it's okay. So I usually start those moments by saying, there's a really small list of things that would make me go, you should separate. And it's so very small that everything else you hear me say from this point on is gonna sound like you should figure out a way to repent and to forgive, to repent and forgive. 
And then some of those couples will follow that advice. They'll find a way to repent of their own sins and to forgive the wrongs that have been done to them. And they'll find a way to come back together and to build their lives on Scripture and to build their lives, their marriage within these guardrails of God's guidance and God's protection. They'll find a way to do that. And their marriages will go on to thrive and to survive and to become an inspiration for others. But there's a lot that will hear that advice and immediately leave my office. And they'll surround themselves with other people who have been through divorce. And they'll surround themselves with other single people who celebrate the, the, the freedom they feel like they have in the expressions of their own sexuality and the partying they get to do and the things they, just the fun times they get to have. And they'll hear those voices that tell them exactly what they wanna hear. And those marriages inevitably fail. I have a friend who says it like this. If you wanna make right choices, you need to listen to right voices. You can listen to wrong voices and it'll take you down the wrong path. It'll push you over the guardrails of God's protection. If you wanna make right choices, you gotta listen to the right voices. So first we submit to God. We draw the line where God draws the line. We resist the devil. We dismiss ungodly advice. Next, we draw near to God. We devote ourselves to God's design. We recognize that God is the author and finisher of our faith, but more than that, he's the author and finisher of our life. The next chapter that we face as we reopen our services in the life of uh, the coronavirus and in the midst of our community, God has already written this story. And if we'll simply follow the story he's written, the design that he's shown us, we won't step outside the bounds of where all the best things of God run wild and free. We need to draw near to God. And there's a promise that comes, comes with that. As you draw near to God, as you devote yourself to God's design, God will draw near to you. And that fellowship and that relationship that you have, he'll be able to speak into your heart and to your mind and to your life through his word, through the advice of godly men and women, through the influence of the church that you go to, through the people that you attend Sunday school with, through the families and friend, friends that are godly voices in your life, you'll be able to hear them clearly so that in that moment where there's uncertainty and you're moved by desire to go one way, God says, that's great, that's a good desire, but let's shape that desire through discipline. And instead of left, go right. Instead of right, go middle. Instead of middle, maybe you should stop for just a second and slow down and just listen. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Devote yourself to God's design. And then the next thing James 4, 7 says, it says, cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands. Now we're in that season where everybody's cleansing their hands, right? I've washed my hands more in the last 20 minutes, it feels like, than my entire life. We've got people washing their hands after they brush their teeth, before they brush their teeth. They walk into a room filled with people, which this room is not a room filled with people. Yet when I get home, the first thing I'll do is I'll wash my hands. And you know why? Because I want to deal with temptation before contamination. I don't want whatever contamination is on me to get in me. And, and that's, that's a, an important idea for us. It's not sinful to be tempted. It's not. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet he dealt with that temptation before it got in him. He dealt with that temptation before contamination. And so how do you do that? Well, every day you submit your heart to God. You take a look at his word. You find out what it says. What it says. You recognize where are the guardrails that allow me to do the best of things that allow me to run wild and free. Where are God's guardrails? How can I live according to his design? How can I dismiss ungodly advice? You look, 
You look at his word. You submit and surrender to those in spiritual authority over you and to those who have lived their lives in a way that's worthy of imitation because they've lived their lives in a way that's before God. There's, there's men in my life that I look to. Paul and Margaret Purifoy. When I grow up, I want my marriage to be like theirs. <laughs> um, Wayne and Gloria Yeckley. When I grow up, I want my prayer life to be like theirs. Mike and Cookie Taylor. <laughs> When I grow up, I want the passion I have for mission and ministry to be like theirs. There's men and women I look to. I deal with temptation before contamination. I find those people that I can listen to, that I can follow and I can imitate. I can, I can, I can pursue and, and know that I'm following inside the space where all of the best things of God run wild and free. So we draw near to God, we cleanse our hands, we deal with temptation before contamination. And then next we purify your heart. It says in uh, cha James chapter four, uh, verse seven through 10, purify your heart, you double-minded. That simply means to develop healthy habits. How many times have you stood in front of the refrigerator and thought, should I or shouldn't I? Should I or shouldn't I? Purify your heart, you double-minded. Which way should I go? Should I, should I pursue this or should I pursue that? Which way should I go? You double-minded. You know what a habit is? A habit is that moment where your knee-jerk reaction causes you to act in a certain way. A trigger shows up, the trigger happens, and then by your knee-jerk reaction, you move at a particular speed and in a particular direction. What if your habits, what if, you were so, what if your heart were so pure that your knee-jerk reaction was to simply surrender and obey God? What if your knee-jerk reaction, what if your heart was so pure before God that by habit, you always ran in the space where the good and best things of God run wild and free? What if your knee-jerk reaction when you got right to the edge of those guardrails, what if your knee-jerk reaction was to go, whoa, I don't need to go there. My dad is a great example of that up Pike's Peak. He was not gonna get anywhere near that guardrail. By habit, <laughs> he's not gonna do that. Maybe we could develop our habits so that we're not double-minded anymore. We're not trying to stick our toe right over the edge of things, but we're standing far from those guardrails and right in the center of what God has for us. And here's the final thing. Purify your heart. We resist the devil. We, we submit to God, resist the devil. We draw near to God. We cleanse our hands. We purify our hearts. And then finally, we humble ourselves. The end of that passage says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. We need to defer to God's design for you. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Defer for, to God's design for you. There's another verse in scripture and it's for those of us who are believers. It's Luke chapter nine, verse 23. And Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, if he wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And scripture is crystal clear. When someone humbles themselves like that, to look at their own desires, it's actually James chapter one. James chapter one says, uh, let no one say when he is tempted, he's tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil. Neither can he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. So how do we overcome those 
desires? Well, it's not that we have to overcome. It's that we have to shape them through the lens of God's design for us. We defer, we, we defer our desires for God's design for us. We want what he wants. We pursue what he says is good for us to pursue. We leave behind those things that would cause us to stumble and fall. We recognize that God's given us a desire for all of these things, for, for food, for sexuality, for, for power, for influence, for friendship, for intimacy, for all of these things. And yet, through the glory of his design for us, he's given us the guardrails that allow us to run in the space where the right things, the glorious things of God, run wild and free. All of that begins, all of that begins by simply surrendering to him, by trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. If you knew what God knew, would you still do what you're about to do? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is our heart's desire as believers to follow you, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And God, you have given us some glorious desires. You've designed us in a particular way and I'm so thankful for that. And I pray that we would trust in you to live our lives in a way that brings glory and honor to you and that serves others and that, that allows us to really live in the guard, between the guardrails of where all of the best things of God run wild and free. Help us, Father, to do that. And today, if there's someone who has yet to begin that journey with you, I pray that they would submit to you, that they would draw close to you, that they would surrender their hearts to you, that today someone would place their faith in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are already believers, I pray that whatever temptation is tripping us up, whatever desire is leading us the wrong way, whatever friend is telling us the thing that we shouldn't ought to be doing, I pray that we would listen closely to your voice and that your voice would be the strongest and loudest voice that leads us today. We love you, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.